Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, morning friends, the Experience by Design mothership is being boarded by pirates. On today's episode, we're welcoming the learning pirate, Lauren Waldman. Lauren has long been interested in education and learning, a passion that saw her take on the head of learning and development in Canada for Tata Consulting Services, as well as being a training and development manager for Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines which, as far as we can tell, seems like a great place for a learning pirate, where they should be, the high seas. That's right. And, yeah, you know, and as her bio says, she is a pirate searching for treasure, and that treasure revolves around how we learn. With her background in neuroscience, the treasure we are looking for lies buried in how our brains learn. And how we learn feels like it has never been more challenging. This is something that any parrot has been living and definitely all teachers have been living. Clearly, the transition to this online environment of learning during the pandemic has only increased this challenge. Already a hard job to teach and learn has been made exponentially in many ways more difficult. Mm -hmm. As a person, myself, living in this situation as a parent and a professor, I can say that we are beset on all sides with any number of tools and technologies that are supposed to make online learning better and more engaging. And that's great. But at the same time, this can start to feel like one is suffocating under the weight of good intentions. For instructors, we have a lot of options, so many options, so, so many options, without really knowing how well they work, or more importantly, how they integrate with how the brain takes in new information. With Lauren, we talk about how the brain processes information and what that means for designing and integrating learning technologies. Just because we have more sources of information and venues to communicate, like Zoom or wherever else people are communicating nowadays, it does not mean that more learning automatically takes place. We explore how technologies, including the dreaded dreaded learning management systems, need to be constructed with how the brain works and how learning happens. We also discuss tricks and tips of how to better reinforce learning, especially in online environments. So friends, we ask you to prepare to let the learning pirate come aboard and join the journey for learning treasures and technological maps that are going to help us find it. We are super excited. Let's turn it over to Lauren. And I, I will say that I did think about you yesterday because I had a very Canadian moment and a very un-Canadian moment at the same time. I was on this guy's this, his Twitch feed and I could tell right away he was Canadian because you can just tell. And so as I was chatting with him on, on the chat, you know, using my chat box, I said something about, I saw Tragically Hip in Boston. And he said, who are they? Oh, sacrilege. I, I know. And I'm like, I, I got a Canadian. And I said the Juno Awards. He's like, I'm not quite sure what those are. Are you sure he was really Canadian? This is what my point was. I said, "Are you really Canadian?" But he was say, he was he was saying the O's the way you all say them. So I was like, "I'm not quite sure." I mean, is there a, not a Canadian cultural indoctrination process that people go through in Canada? Only in, in which, Quebec. Is it really where you learn no. about Anne Murray and Gordon Lightfoot and you know tragically? Poutine, hip? Pepsi, yeah, like Poutine, all. <laughs> Pepsi, Our Lady Peace. 
you know, Alanis <laughs> Morissette. I'm just trying to think about all of these, you know, touch tones or touch points for Canadian culture that he didn't know. And I, I there was some always point, lead with the Biebs. The, the, oh, Justin Bieber, he was of Always that age group. So I, I thought about, about you, Lauren, and thinking that we need a, a better Canadian education app or something experience for these wayward Canadians who have no idea who the tragically hip were. I will get right on that. <laughs> and I'm not That's your newest about. workshop is that, I think. Life goals, right? <laughs> I know. What would a Canadian educational app look like? It would be better than Blackboard. It would have to be better than Blackboard. I don't know. I would just call it A. Question mark. <laughs> uh, I like that. <laughs> the American pronunciation. Uh. <laughs> uh, what is that? I know. That sounds distinctly American, doesn't it? Uh, which which part of Canada are you in? Toronto. Toronto. Cool. That's that's the company I work for is in Toronto. Oh no way! Who do you work for? It's called Motive Base. It's a like a small tech research firm. Nice. Yeah, we're kind of big on the tech over here. Makes sense. Eventually, I'll come visit Toronto when there's not, you know, a pandemic. When when you you're allowed to cross our borders and vice versa. Yes. And also and also that too. Yeah, when I'm allowed to. It's funny actually. That was Toronto was the last place I was in March of last year. I, had to, I was doing a research project for a client, and they cut it in half because COVID was starting to happen, and they're like, "Borders are closing. Leave." I was like, "Okay, I've got to go." <laughs> and it was just like airplane next day, like out. I mean, in Boston, so it's not it wasn't too far to leave, but just like it was it was very strange of just like. Because I was going to go to get Alberta next week and it was just like, get out, go. Okay. See, I would have said, what happens if I don't and the borders close? Can I stay? That would make my wife sad. Oh, uh, well, just then, you, but you, you can work in Canada, drive in a cab and send money to the old country to try to bring her back. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't true. be worth as much, but. <laughs> and so there it's you are. Remuneration Toronto, you're doing the learning experience stuff in Toronto, eh? During the yeah, we're just are we just gonna make this all Canadian? I can. I being from Detroit, I can. I can. I can lapse into my Canadianness pretty easily. <laughs> pretty easily. Well, I, I don't just uh, keep it to to Toronto. World domination. <laughs> I mean, have pirates, you, pirates have no bounds. Pirates right? have no bounds. I mean, have you have you gotten busier in the pandemic because of all the? Yeah. Stuff because I, as I was saying before we started recording, I have been fighting technology with my online courses and streaming for the last week, and the technology is winning. It is literally that scene from the Terminator where John Connor is being blasted away yeah. by all the robots. That's been my last week as an educator, and I don't know that I signed up for this. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, um, you know, because I've I've been in the classroom and I've been I've been on that side of things, and then you know I've been out of the classroom for so long. But knowing how um, challenging it was going to be for all the teachers to to figure this out on like you know <laughs> the turn of a dime, um, I went out and I I was doing a bunch of free workshops, and the outpour was was significant. And what I came to realize is I could help people to. Um, to understand how to facilitate better with online technologies. But I think what people were really more interested in and what I saw was more valuable was teaching people um, a little bit more about us as humans with all the knowledge of the brain. It was, you know, because there was one thing was to be stressed about the technology, but it was how do we deal with that anxiety? Um, and how are we dealing with ourselves? How are we dealing with the people we can't see anymore? How are our students doing? Like, how is the world doing? And how can we understand that better based on how we're reacting to it? Because our brains are controlling it all. So the conversations inevitably always went to, to, you know, questions about, oh, well, you know, 
I'm having my up days and my down days on those down days. Do you have any tips for how I can get back up again? And I'm like, okay, let's do this. Let's, let's make this about humans. And, you know, we can learn from that and, and take that into the classrooms. That's super cool. So let, I mean, let's, uh, can, can we talk about some of that? And like, what, what were some of the pieces that you, you ended up pulling out in terms of helping educators refine their human as it were? You know, I think it was really to do, and I was, I mean, I was experiencing it myself as well, obviously, you know, going through what everybody else was going through. Um, A lot of sort of that emotional regulation. And, you know, I think what a lot of people, you know, and even myself before I started learning, we don't really understand the difference between emotions and feelings. And at, you know, a really simple list, you know, simple level emotions are really the chemical response of our brains. It's what gets released, but the feelings are our conscious experiences of that. And when you sort of separate those two and you can understand that I'm getting really, really angry or frustrated or something right now, it's because there's a chemical of cocktails that have been released to allow for you to experience that. So if we can understand that we're releasing those chemicals and our bodies are then responding and we're having that conscious experience, then if we can sort of reverse engineer that process a little bit and say, okay, if I know that I'm contributing to the release of that, how can I actually slow that down a little bit? How can I be more conscious of the signs that I'm about to lose my, (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, And whether that be, you know what, my hands are getting sweaty, my heart rate's increasing, I am getting this nervous, anxious feeling in my body. Well, that's your brain doing that all. So how do we recognize those signs a little bit faster so we can, like what I say is join forces with your brain to kind of calm it down and sort of harness ourselves a little bit more before we completely wind up on the kitchen floor, (laughs) you know, or just punching random strangers. (laughs) (laughs) If you can can find a random stranger. I mean, yeah. you know, if you can find a stranger to punch, I mean, it's they're kind of in short supply right now with the pandemic. I, 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 really, I really do find it, you know, the idea that we should bring the brain back into education. <laughs> it seems like we shouldn't have to say that. <laughs> it seems like, you know, we're educating people, which is about their, you know, their brains, but yet we never consider their brains. We not say never, but we, we often mm. don't consider their brains and how brains function when thinking yeah. about how we approach education. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's really interesting. So there was um, a post on uh, on LinkedIn that I had responded to, and it was um, the learning styles. And you know, we've been trying to crush this this neural myth for a very very long time. But there was someone who had um, asked very sincerely and genuinely, and said, you know, hey Lauren, like, why do you think that this is still a thing? You know, like people seem to know that this isn't a thing, but it's kind of still a thing. And I said, honestly. And she was an academic. She came from an educational institution. And I said, quite honestly, it was just like me. I'm like, we just didn't know any better. Mm. That's all. You know, it's, and it's that on top of the fact that when you take hundred and, you know, 120 odd years of an institutionalized educational experience where we were all taught to believe and behave the same way, it's very hard to change that. So we can say you've got a learning preference because that's true. But to say that we're all boxed into a learning style, the way that we were taught to believe because of all the, you know, all of those like personality tests that we did and the colors and all, you know, everything that wanted to put us in a box, we then started that narration of ourselves. Oh, I'm a visual learner. Oh, I'm an auditory learner. Oh, I'm a real tactile learner. And we kept telling ourselves that over and over and over again. And the brain believes everything that we tell it. So there, lo and behold, that's what we became. So Mm -hmm. it's 
hard to change the brain when, especially when it comes to a belief in a behavior. So that's why, I mean, these, you know, so as far as why, why aren't these things and why isn't the brain being brought more, you know, I think rampantly into education, because it takes time to change other people's beliefs and behaviors around things that they've believed for a very long time. We just got through my class talking about um, conspiracy theories, speaking about how people learn, <laughs> right? Mm. And, and the marketing of products and information. And, you know, t- you know, people, I had a student say, you know, she's lost. And it was interesting terminology, right? I've lost family members to these political conspiracy theories mm-hmm. in which people, and this is again, the brain working where people find out something and they get introduced to it. But once that door gets opened and there's an emotional connection to it in some kind of way, then it becomes more memorable, more accessible, more interesting. And people feel a sense of connection and belonging to others who believe this thing. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of those lessons are things we don't do when we're teaching people in classrooms. It's not emotional. It's not motivational. It's not connected to a broader group or a broader identity, right? It's maybe not memorable. And so I, I even wonder what lessons can we learn about the spread of conspiracy theories into how we construct our own learning materials and educational experiences so that those kinds of things resonate more with people and not this other stuff that they're taking in. Well, I mean, social constructs and like contextualization is always going to be, you know, major. I mean, emotions are connected mm-hmm. to every cognitive process in memory, right? Like it's just, we're built that way. <laughs> like we just, it's undeniable. But I think it's, you know, if you're not ever educated about how our operational system works and what's even like in there, how many resources are in there for us to utilize, um, then you're not going to know how to use it. You know, it's, it's just like anything else you can, you can, I like to think about it, like getting something from Ikea, you can like try to follow those instructions, but if the instructions weren't there, (laughs) like you'd be completely lost. We don't get instruction manuals to our brains. Um, and the science is still so new, you know, it's only about 30 years, 30 years really that we've had really great um, technology to allow us to really dive into the brain. So it's still really new. So then you need translators, right? There's tons of scientists out in the world doing amazing things, but there's very few translators to make that, you know, practical and, you know, digestible to the everyday person. I mean, I'm still, I mean, you're never going to learn everything about the brain. It's just, it's, it's such a magical mystery box of like wonder. It's, it's, there's so much to learn, but I think if we don't, especially as educators, if we don't start learning a little bit about the thing that's actually doing the learning, then we're not serving ourselves. And we're definitely not serving the people that, you know, we're trying to help. I mean, are we then, it's almost like we're fundamentally misaligned with how we even approach education then. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and, and like, I don't know if we should be teaching first graders neuroscience. I kind of do now, but, um, you know, but, but even just in terms of like, yeah, I mean, minimally, so one of the things that like that, that this, this sounds like that other, that listeners might think of is, is also mindfulness practices on one level, right? But it's like understanding stimulus and response and how you react mm-hmm. before reacting, right? So mm-hmm. you can actually control that reaction in some way. And so, but I think it's really cool too, because in my own personal interest in, in Buddhist philosophy and, and mindfulness practices, um, and even how the Dalai Lama has really embraced science and, and neuroscience too more recently is super interesting to just contemplate that contemplative practice actually. And that by knowing the brain and, and how we sort of react and and when things come to us and like what, what that stimulus is, uh, you know, I think would be a really interesting place of like fundamentally shifting how we do education, like starting instead of data downloads, 
more like like kind of what you're saying. It's that understanding how we even gather information, right? Mm-hmm. What what's happening up up in the in the clock tower, as it were. You know, um, I, I don't know. So I guess I would love to hear is just some of your your perspectives on, on like, you know, if we're thinking about this for primary education versus maybe middle or higher education. You know, what are some of the different mm-hmm. levels that we might think about in terms of how do we bring neuroscience or neurothinking? I love the idea of neuro myths. You said too. How do we bring those into education? Well, I can tell you, I've got um, I've got a four year old niece who, when she was, gosh, I guess two and a half, three years old, because you know she would see what I was working on, and she took like they're so curious, and now every time I'm over there, she wants to know. She wants to know about her brain. She wants to like you know she'll point out pieces, and I think when you get them from that age, right, because their brains are changing so much, and when you start to educate them like that. Now she's got an inherent curiosity of like, what's going on in there. But then you take her brother who's six years old, who has one form or another of ADHD. He has a very hard time paying attention and focusing, but to teach him what his brain is doing, what he gets very reactive when he cannot do something, very emotionally reactive when he can't do something because of the developmental times of the brain. If you don't start working with it, when you recognize it, then you're missing out that opportunity. So there are classrooms that I know, you know, more across the United States than there are in Canada that are at a kindergarten level starting to introduce like, what's your brain and what's your, what are your feelings? What are your emotions? And, and really getting kids interested in that. And there has been research done that's shown even, you know, from, from a young age or, you know, up into adulthood, when you actually teach somebody about their operating system, you're able to use it more effectively. <laughs> Doesn't matter what age you are. So, you know, there are so many different ways that we can start integrating this into education, into the classrooms, and, you know, just into our, our general human lives. You know, as much as I am sort of the, the learning person and the, like, the designer of all the learning with the brain stuff, this really does come down to fundamentally who and what we are as humans and how we operate. Take away the learning. The learning is like, you know, it comes when you learn about all these things because you can do it more effectively. If I know what an emotional, like, what, a, what you know, what the quote unquote amygdala hijack is, then I can recognize when that's happening a lot faster and not turn into the Hulk when, you know, I see that person grabbing for the last roll of toilet paper. I can calm myself down <laughs> and be like, it's going to be okay. Paper, smash. <laughs> smash. <laughs> yeah, going, going back to the conspiracy stuff, I do, you know, it's, I do wonder, you obviously know way more about this than I do, but it seems like people do become addicted to the rage and the outrage, right? And I, th- mm. I think there's also this cultural element of that where we've set up a cultural system in which being outraged is, uh, is a laudable expression uh, and reaction to a situation that we find potentially objectable. Mm. And people then get, you know, it becomes an identity marker, right? Mm-hmm or almost like a badge that one wears. So I, I, being a sociologist, I am really interested in that intersection between we have these features, these traits, these fundamentals that we might be born with that are part of our own individual development, but then that develops within this larger social context in which we acquire these things based upon influencers, social, you know, structural factors, um, cultural factors, whatever, that then shape mm-hmm. and mold those elements too. Yeah, I mean that my 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 niece, the same one. Um, you know, as as interested as she is in the brain, I we were sitting at the dinner table the other night, and uh, she came out of her room, and she I knew she would had she had been sneaking YouTube. I knew she had been sneaking YouTube, and uh, she sat down at the table and she started to say, 
something about um, how she couldn't wear something because it wasn't beautiful. The girl on the TV said it wasn't beautiful and she's mm. just turned five. Sure. And I was like, well, that's not okay. That's not okay. And then I looked at my sister. I said, can you take YouTube off of her, whatever she's looking at? <laughs> <laughs> what are the parental controls on that? But that social influence is, is a real thing. You know, whether you're a child, whether you're an adult, you know, we've seen it, you know, with experiments with the halo effect, you know, one person turns around, does everybody turn around? And there's so many different ways that we can use social influence for good and for evil. But I think the, I think, you know, kind of Adam, you were going into mindfulness and, um, you know, I'm, I practice, I practice daily. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure that I like the word mindfulness anymore. That's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's something, unfortunately, because of marketing, it's, it, it itself has been a little bit bastardized. So, you know, when I think about what is true mindfulness, well, mindfulness is your ability to be focused. Mm. And that's what mindfulness is. But the problem with that is most of us were never taught what attention is and how to direct it so that we can focus. So you want to say like, what are some of the, you know, in my personal opinion, you want to give anyone from a child to an adult, some of the best skills you could possibly give them right now, teach them that, teach Mm -hmm. them what attention is, teach them how to harness it so that they can focus, teach them about the resources in their brains, because our brains are energy suckers. Like, but we can manage that. We can't control it, but we can harness it. We can manage how much we're expending in a day. And for teachers, especially when you're designing lessons, when you're in the classroom or not in the classroom, as we're all online right now, knowing these things and knowing how to manage not only your own resources and your own energy, but those of the ones that you're teaching, it's, it just completely changes the game, completely changes the game. It, it, does, it does make me think about <clears throat> this idea of, of not being able to stay focused because I, you know, our professors are, am I having to compete with things that are competing for their attention? And I will never beat YouTube or TikTok, right? Mm. You know, and, and so one of the things we, I find is while I'm, you know, doing a better job at, I was looking at some slides that I created a long time ago and, and completely changed them around to make it more narrative, more compelling, more intriguing through a storyline and whatnot. And a lot of it is competing for that attention factor, especially when mm. people are online where they might have multiple screens open at the same time or doing something else or talking to a roommate. The, 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 the weight on professors and educators to compete for that attention when we were not even taught how to teach a class, right. let right. alone produce a video, <laughs> you know, and storyboard some content. That's a whole other skill set we never got into. And I, you know, it would be so much easier if we and my students had the power to focus more. And so I do wonder, yeah. you know, is that power to focus something that because we're missing professors are getting taxed? as well as if our students had a power to focus more, would it let us off the hook of doing a better job? Because I am getting Absolutely better at what not. I do. I mean, I think it's, it's more, you know, there's a responsibility on both sides, right? So I think, you know, for as, as a teacher and someone who's producing, you know, a, a learning plan or a lesson design or whatever it is, you know, the best advice I can give is like, see it as a game of Jenga. If you removed part of the content, does it fall apart? No, take it out. You've got to, you know, just keep removing until you've really narrowed in on what it is that you need people to learn. You got to like really, really zero in on that. And then it's our job to draw the attention of our students to that, draw them to what it is that we want them to focus on. Now, 
if they've got multiple tabs open and their cell phones and whatnot, I mean, I've been telling people in the middle of like sessions, I'd be like, oh, by the way, I would love for you to take a screenshot right now and share it with everyone. <laughs> and that will get their attention and their focus very quickly. And you'll see them scramble to start like closing tabs and like put their phone away. Um, so even things like that, you know, just little triggers like that. So you can remind people, you know, we, we are here for an actual purpose, but um, those are skills that you have to harness within yourselves. And those are skills that do need to be taught, but you can learn them more effectively when you do understand your own operational system. Right. Mind wandering is a real thing. Attention, like focus is not easy. You do have to train it. You have to, you know, very gently train it. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be through, you know, I meditate. I love to meditate, but it took me a good four years to cultivate a strong enough meditation practice um, to be able to disregard the world around me. Now, that's not necessarily the, the aim of meditation, but within six to eight weeks of a solid practice, your brain will change. It will change. And you will be able to, and when, you know, when we're looking at how does your brain actually change, you know, you, you know, Adam, you brought up the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama, um, and there's been several studies done with Buddhist monks who have gone into MRIs um, to see what are the structural changes of their brains. And what we see from, you know, learning these skills is there's a calming of the emotional of the emotional center in the brain called the amygdala. Because when the amygdala is, is reactive, you're you know, emotional. You can get very heated. You get really happy. You get whatever that emotion or feeling that comes out of you. But when you can calm that and you can sort of recenter things to your prefrontal cortex, which is, you know, a strong area of your working memory and where your focus and attention lies. And even just knowing that those two parts of your brain will compete. Right. And the emotional one will all, you know, if you don't, if you can't harness it, the emotional one will always win. That's why people hulk out. Right. <laughs> uh, but even knowing that, right, that there's those two very powerful forces in your brain, that one of them will work with you to maintain your attention and focus, and the other one's going to work against you. So building up a mindfulness practice, again, I don't like the word mindful anymore. So I'm going to say learning how to attend to your focus. That is like amazing because it structurally will change your brain, but then you can actually in the, in the real world, you can physically experience it and say, Oh, not paying attention there. Got me. And just kind of bring yourself back. Mm-hmm. Can I just take CBD oil for that? Cause I really don't want to take six to eight weeks. Nah, just go straight for the weed. Let's just go like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. D- dive in a little bit further. Yeah. We can talk notes. about psil- psilocybin will be our next, uh, our, our next, uh, you know, our, our next chat. Cause that's going to be the way of the future. Actually, the, the cool thing is my, my city here in, in Somerville, we, we have the, the mayor and the electoral board have just decided to make it the, the lowest, like we can't federally decriminalize it in a city, but we have pushed it so that there's no police resources allowed to go towards combating psilocybin or psychedelics, which is nice. So, so we're on oh, the wow. way. So the wave that's is amazing. coming. That's yeah. amazing. And we're behind Portland, Oregon, but we're, we're we'll get there eventually. <laughs> Um, but yes, but I think, but that actually that, the, but even that too, I mean, obviously we can't, we can't yet teach psychedelics in schools, but, um, but just even reflecting on the idea of, of actually, you know, both altered states of consciousness, because meditation actually functions in a similar space. I, I think you we probably in like the fMRI studies show that a bit too, just in terms of that they do help us, you know, by being in a different plane of, of thinking or, or attention or focus, right. Uh, there, there is, I think some correlates between meditative practice and, Absolutely. And psychedelics or certain some certain certain of psychedelics. I don't know about all of them, but um can't speak on behalf of all of them, but there there's definitely it, it's it's a space. I mean, they've been researching this since the 50s. 
Yeah. There's so much there, you know, it just was never, you know, it was never allowed to come out into the public space. Um, and, you know, we won't even get into the the discussion about how the pharmaceutical industry will do everything in its power to shut this down but, right. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. till they can market and capitalize on it. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean, again, had we not known and had we not learned from all these things, it all comes back down to learning, right? We experiment, we grow, we learn, and we evolve as humans. <laughs> that, that is true. Um, and even like in Gary Shannon said this too, in, in the idea around conspiracy theories, but like, if we even extrapolate out from that to, to add to this too, is just the idea of how we tell stories for ourselves. Right. And that, mm. um, conspiracy theories of course are a, a form of story. They're a form of narrative that help us make sense of why we feel powerless. I, I would say, you know, um, and that makes us a little bit more self-important because we're the ones that know the actual story of, of you know, the evil cabal oh, yeah. of, of whoever is doing something. But, but even this idea, just in terms of, of, you know, kind of always learning and, and having a sense of focus. But then there's something interesting about storytelling that happens in our brain too, because we're, we're wired for narrative too. I think it's one of these pieces and that we love to see random things strung together into a, a Texas on a journey of, of some sense. And like, we then feel like we've accomplished something. And I don't know, I, I don't, I don't often think about, you know, um, I like this learning how to attend your focus in relationship to narrative. But I think there's something about that too, where it is like, you're, it's almost like recognizing a narrative thread of, of as your brain is like, you know, mind wandering that you can say, oh, actually, oh, I'm noticing that I'm feeling, or I'm thinking, I'm doing this or whatever. And it's actually, you know, you can kind of add a little, a little power to your, your practice, I think, uh, by, by, I don't know, there's something, there's something narrative about it too. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud here, but. Um, but it's what, what is that narrative? I, you know, I like yeah. my, one of my catchphrases, you know, for years now has been your brain believes everything you tell it. Mm-hmm. What are you telling it? <laughs> you know, I, so I like that. Your, yeah, yeah. What, what's your narrative around, you know, and it, what's your narrative around that? So it's, and I think that's something, you know, even that in itself is just such a valuable thing to remember. Your brain is mm-hmm. listening to you because it's you. <laughs> and uh, just be careful what you tell it over and over again, because that's what it's going to believe. And, you know, even we, we can circle that back to the learning styles. I'm a this, I'm a that. Well, yeah, you've been telling yourself that for a very long time. I love people who come to me and say, oh, I've got a horrible memory. I'm like, how long have you been telling yourself that? Oh, I can never remember people's names. I'm like, well, you never will if you keep saying that. Having having children, it's interesting to see this play out longer term through generations. So like my oldest daughter was, you know, having a problem in math. My wife said to her just offhand, yeah, I had had a hard time in math too. And I said, don't tell her that. Because don't, you know, don't generation it. <laughs> yeah, don't generation it, right? I mean, number one, I don't know that she's having a hard time in math, or you might, you know. But if you tell her you had a hard time in math too, now you're creating a generational effect of we're not math people or whatever it is, right? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, oh gosh, math and I broke up, and you know, in early high school years, we had a devastating breakup, the two of us. And you know, <laughs> I did too. I had to do with, with pre-calculus when when I found that I was told, and this is a lie, right? This is a lie that you cannot take a square root of an of a negative number. This is what I was told. I was told this. You can't do it. I get the pre-calculus. They say, well, you can use an imaginary number. And once they said an imaginary numbers, I went, I'm out. So I can have an imaginary <laughs> answer then. He's like, no, it doesn't work that way. So, well, why not? Then I got like all Wittgenstein before I read Wittgenstein about, you know, <laughs> is two plus two, four, right? I mean, it, you know, the issue of how, you know, we, we are taught that things are concrete very often growing up. And then we get to a certain point in our education where we learn that they're actually a lot more abstract and fluid. And I am kind of fascinated with this disconnect between the concreteness in which we're taught in K through 12, especially around standardized testing. And then when I get them in college, 
trying to deprogram from this expectation that there are specific answers that you can find that are right and ones that are wrong. And like I rebelled against pre-calc because now we're in this theoretical space of mathematics. These kids are also rebelling or really resistant or afraid of the abstract notion of knowledge and that there are no necessary, there are no answers perhaps around questions we're exploring. I think the, what's interesting is, is, you know, students nowadays have all the answers to everything at the tips of their fingers. I think, you know, if you grew up in, in a generation that didn't have the internet, um, then you don't know, you know, you, you, you just kind of believed what you were told or you went to the library and pulled out some very heavy encyclopedias and believe what it told you. <laughs> and, yeah. and you know, that was the narrative. We didn't have this plethora of information to go to, um, to sort through. It's like, we're, we're an information overload at this point. Right. Like, but you know, there yeah. are some things that are always going to have definitive answers and there's always some things that are going to be questioned. And I mean, that, that it's, that's science in a nutshell, right? Like science is continually questioning everything that we know to see if we actually know it. <laughs> I, th yeah. I think that's, that's an interesting part. You know, the idea is not that we don't have information, but do they lack, and how do we teach the ability to turn information into answers? Mm. You know, that, that I was just, I just got done teaching critical thinking today as much time as I could spend on it during a semester on a different topic. But this idea of turning information into answers and that you have to then be in the position of finding stuff on the internet and making determinations of its veracity, its validity, its applicability, its efficacy, all of these things. And again, it's, that's not necessarily the stuff that we teach them. And it's also can be kind of boring stuff to teach. Well, it's interesting. Cause I remember, you know, when I was still in corporate and I would do leadership and I would do, I kind of, I, I kind of like look back at what I used to teach people in like critical thinking, problem solving. And I kind of laugh at myself. I'm like, damn, that was so mundane. That was so surface level, you know, and it was when you think about it, you know, what's critical thinking for me is the ability to, to recognize the fact that everybody else's brains have different networks of experiences in there and to really tap into that. Mm. I can't just critically, I can critically think on my own, but you know, if I, I want to look at, you know, everybody else's experiences and what's going on and, and like, look at problem solving through the lens of other people's, you know, how, you know, I think when I, I see everyone, I see your faces, but I'm really looking through your faces into your brains. <laughs> it's like right. in those, I know you've got some crazy experiences as some, all these types of different memories. We might've had the exact same experience and completely like it was a different memory to us. We looked at, we visioned it the different, we saw it in a different way. We experienced it in a different way. So now when we go to tackle something, I'm going to come to it one way. You're going to come to it another way. And that's, that to me is amazing problem solving. That to me is amazing critical thinking is really being able to see it through the views of multiple, like through the kaleidoscope of everybody else's brains and experiences. You know, I look at everyone, like, I mean, when we were able to go to restaurants, I would look at the waiters and the waitresses and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I could never carry that many plates. You are talented. <laughs> like your brain is doing great things right now to maintain that balance. <laughs> and I appreciate that. I look at artists. I'm like, where does that come from? Right. How does your brain do that? That's phenomenal. That's so fascinating to me. So, you know, anything that anybody else can do, I, I just look at it as like, wow, your brain is networked and, and pathwayed in such a different way than mine. And that is so phenomenal. So how would I not about, you know, value what, how you, how you look at, this particular issue or problem. 
I mean, does that does that make it more complicated to then essentially teach discernment? Like, because uh, I, I, to, to, to both your points, too, I think it's quite interesting that we do have a, a, you know, we have this incredible access to information that that's like higher than anything we've ever had before. And and I, Gary, you're totally right too that like we have never that was not a a teaching point back in the day. It was like go to the library and read something, look it up in an encyclopedia, right? Right. Um, but now that we have so much. You know, yes, we can look up a billion different things on any subject um, yeah. online, and so, so like certainly, critical thinking and discernment are, are hugely important. But then, how do we, how do we like square that with? I think your really interesting point there, Lauren, of like, um, I love the idea that critical thinking is that people are differently wired, and so we have to find a way to both celebrate that, but then build with it. But then, like, I, I don't know. At, at some point, though, too, there has to be. You know, it can't just go on at infinitum, though, right? Because everybody's right. It, it then, like, you know, which it doesn't. I know you're not saying that, but just like, like, I, I, it is an interesting challenge of how do we teach that? Of like, let's let's bring in these different wirings, but then say without actually, this is actually maybe this is my point. Like, without having to make it then like be filtered into a boring paper uh, or mm-hmm. a presentation that then they feel like, well, I didn't do anything. I didn't learn anything. I just had to like go read some stuff and then shit out a paper. You know, right. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know. This is really interesting of just like, how do we, how do we, then how it's, yeah. how is it contextually relevant then? Right. It's yeah, like, I think yeah. where traditional learning was like, okay, go research this and then regurgitate something in right. a few paragraphs yeah. and like, blah, you know, and, but, but no, yeah. adding your thoughts and opinions there. Well, you know, students who haven't had that kind of life experience that, you know, that, that we might've had, you know, as our seniors, they've got, we have to now look back and say, what's in your world right now? What's in your brain right now? How is this? So, you know what? TikTok to me, I don't even know it. I don't like, I just, TikTok is like, I always associate TikTok with that, with whatever that dance is, that banana dance, or I don't know what it is, but I know you can't see me doing this. Well, can you I, do it for I can't us so we can do it. it. The windshield wiper thingy, I don't know what it is, but that to me I is no TikTok. <laughs> luckily, I, luckily, I have but no idea what to, that is. But a student might look at TikTok and say, no, this is actually a critical platform for us to connect with social media. And the way that I contextualize that into what you're wanting me to do is this. Oh, wow. Damn. Never thought about it that way because your experiences are completely different than mine. So when it comes to teaching, when it comes to learning something, it's really, you know, yeah, do teachers have to do a little bit more more digging and a lot more observation of their students and, and really get into what, what is in their brains? What are, what are their memories right now? What are they experiencing? Because that's what we have to latch their learning onto, not what we want it to be. It, it's one of the things that I started to do, I, I mentioned to you before long when we were chatting, you know, the other day, was go on Twitch and do live streaming of educational content on Twitch. And it really has changed the way in which I think about how I present information, but also something as simple as how I use the chat box when I'm on a Zoom call with my students. Mm. And, you know, students would not use the Zoom box, I mean, the chat box very much in a Zoom class because the whole idea was supposed to be going, you know, communicating with the professor. But I said, I encourage you to use it to communicate with each other, which is very much a Twitch thing. And one of the mm-hmm. things I found last time with my grad class was they were very good, very good at doing that. They were having this whole conversation with themselves around the class topics we were talking about that had nothing to do with me. Yeah. And it was really great because they were engaged. And then I saved that chat and then put it into the Blackboard site. And like, here's what you all were talking about. Yeah. And I think that when, you know, I use, if, if, if you're working with Zoom, there's so many things that you can do to keep the engagement going and, and, that, you know, I like to use the annotation feature as well. I'm like, 
scribble all over my board. Like, let me know what you're up to. Like, what do you think about this? And it becomes something that you take away as the teacher because you collect their thoughts and their feedback, but then you can give it back to them as a reinforcement of what they just learned or what they're, what they're trying to learn right now, or, you know, using the chat, right. It's like, I want to know what you think. So I'm going to ask you very direct and specific questions to that and go for it. Have a free for all in the chat and know that we'll collect that. And it becomes another way for them to encode their own memories later on. Oh yeah. I said that. Oh yeah. You said that. But mm-hmm. that's the other, when you're using those functions, if you don't capture it, if you don't give it back to, to the people who were involved in it, then what was the point of it? Yeah. No, I think Use that, I think that, no, I, I think you're 100% right too, because it's like a lot of, a lot of contemporary teaching is, is I feel like it's about judoing, like taking, taking the, the inputs that you have, because we have so many different kinds of input now, whether it's a chat box or a jam board or whatever, and then judoing that into their, like getting people to be involved in the way that they're going to be involved, seeing where they're engaged, taking that as a teachable tool, moment, place, whatever, to then give people a sense of investment too. I mean, because it is, it's almost, you know, in the land of endless personalization and customization, and this it's kind of part of it too, where it's like making people feel like, oh, I am invested. I didn't realize I was invested mm. in this lesson until I got to have my comments and realize I can talk about the latest, I don't know, side video or Billie Eilish song or whatever that really spoke to me. Um, but I wasn't thinking about that with critical thinking. But now, now I'm invested because I, I can think about these lyrics in relation to this lesson or something. So there is, yeah, it's 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 almost like uh, we have the gift, or teachers have a bit of the gift now to like make it a little bit less about memorization because it's actually about Re, you know, repackaging and repurposing, or again, I don't know, I like the word of like, judoing it to the ground uh, of like taking different inputs and then like helping people realize you actually are invested in this. Like you, you have a personal stake. I'm just helping you see it. And that then kind of, yeah. as you like reinforces the memory, the experience, maybe being focused on it, who knows, but. Who knows? Well, I mean, we don't, again, looking back in, the, in our classrooms, like we didn't have chat boxes. And nope. our teachers sure as heck weren't recording the conversations for us to listen to later. <laughs> so like, yeah. if you're going to use chat, if you're going to use annotation, capture it, Right. capture it because then you, like I said, give it back to them afterwards yeah. because they're more invested in what they said and what they, what they wrote more than what, what we're saying. <laughs> so. it, was, it was wild because it was like one of those things where I didn't think about it until I thought about it. I started to use a Google doc to type out the conversations we were having and sharing that screen so they saw it. And then when someone would make a comment or ask a question, I would put their name. So Michael said this, Janet said that, you know, or if someone made a recommendation, I would put down hat tip to so-and-so for making this recommendation. And I, I, and see I'm, when, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, I'm curious to see like how that, how they take it then, you know, what would, you know, are they more engaged, more intrigued, uh, more attentive, more focused? And does it make a bigger impact because now they have that, yeah. they can see that material being created. We're creating knowledge and they can see it on the screen. Oh, it makes a hundred percent difference. 100% difference. And that's why the design of learning has to be more strategic and intentional to create those moments. Right. But we're not just creating the moments. Like for me, when I do that, what if I'm designing for, you know, whatever it is that I'm designing for, you know, actually, I just did a, um, I did a, a workshop the other day for, for 25 adults and I used the chat, I used annotation and when it, what captured screenshots and when it was all done, I gave it a day, put it packaged all, all together and said, look, look what you did. And this is part of their continual learning. And they will remember that because A, I designed it very effectively and I used, I used very specific language. I used uh, imagery 
to trigger, you know, to, to prime and to trigger back their memories, but it's them contributing. It's like knowledge 2.0, right? It's, it's contributing. But the point is, is you give it back to them. It doesn't become a lost archive. Hmm. This is interesting. I'm, I'm wondering now because, so there, there's a, beyond TikTok now, there's a, there's a new social media platform called Clubhouse that is. We were just talking about we it. We were yeah, just, just talking about, yeah. about I just this. Got, I just like got on Clubhouse. Person. The six yeah. person is much yes. to me. Cool. I joined like two days ago, so we should, we should, we should Clubhouse it. Yeah, we should um, Clubhouse. <laughs> yeah. Clubhouse. But the funny thing is those conversations are, they're there and they're, they're not kept. You know, so it's like, it's funny. It's like, it's the Snapchat of audio, yes. um, I guess. And that's an interesting idea. Uh, and but so, uh, so any, I think you're totally right. Like when it comes to learning context, we need to actually give it back. And I love the idea of re, like being intentional about how do we give it back to people so they can experience it. And then, um, I don't know, but it's, it's just funny. I'm, I, you know, Clubhouse just popped in my head there of like, they're not thinking about this, but um, maybe they should be. But just like, this is idea too of like, you know, there is also, I think this, uh, I don't know, this desire to be present in like this scarcity effect of like, oh, I'm not going to have this conversation after this. I have to be here for this now kind of thing mm. um, that I, I imagine that they're trying to capture in the world of, of uh, you know, uh, just continual production of things and, and recording. You now know, so. that you're saying it like that, Adam, I'm like, maybe they shouldn't have called it Clubhouse. Maybe they should have called it FOMO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should have a new app, FOMO. <laughs> FOMO, FOMO, yeah. <laughs> the app. <laughs> and I forgot about Learning Pirate. I just became a unicorn in the tech industry. <laughs> there you go, right? The FOMO unicorn. <laughs> um, we're going we're not going to air this. We're going to take that clip out. And we're going right? to Right, yeah, please. It. Just yep. delete it. <laughs> delete that. You guys, Absolutely. this is like a joint. I I see my co-founders in front of me. Like. Absolutely. Hello, my fellow billionaires. Want, everyone knows if you want a very successful business, you want to find a sociology and anthropologist to make it happen. That's, I mean, yeah. Because nothing makes it rain money more than the, the behavioral sciences. <laughs> <Amen>. <laughs> Absolutely. Could be true. Cultural capital, that's worth something, right? No. Absolutely. <laughs> there is there is a thing that I've been noticing on the on the, the whole Twitch world, and Adam sick and tired of me talking about it, but it's such a fascinating place. It's true. Of even like Discord, like using Discord servers to link into the the Twitch channels. And then there's gamification of people with around oh, their inputs yeah. into the servers where they can level up. Like I leveled up on some server, I don't even know what it means. They're like, oh, congratulations, you reached level two. I'm like, I did. Yes. Great. Right. I don't know what that means though. And, but it's how all these channels are, can be either emergent as features of something that's being created, or as you said, intentionally being designed mm-hmm. as something that's being created. And one of the things I think that professors and teachers do struggle from is, is um, option fatigue or the paradox of choice, right? You, you have all these tools at your disposal. You can do a this, mm-hmm. you can do a that, you can use a this, you can use a that, but do, what, do I, what do I know how to use well? And it's better not to use something poorly than, you know, you know what I mean? If you don't know how to use it well, then don't use it at all. But there's this pressure or there's a sense that we have to add Microsoft Teams and make sure you add OneNote. Right. And then you can have a form with a pull anywhere, use Kahoot. And then you can integrate that in with the other thing. And you're like, oh my good Lord, have mercy. I just, you know, mm-hmm. how do I manage it? Too much. It is too much. It's way too much. I mean, even when you're just like, you know, you just listed off a bunch of things. I'm like thinking in my head, I'm like, Oh man, there's the occipital lobe like just on fire, and there's the parietal lobe moving away, and there's the prefrontal cortex trying to like you know keep this all you know harnessed and the working memory resource is too much. 
it's way too much for one brain to manage. Right. So it's like, you know, don't forget like the, you, I mean, like all of us, you know, zoom fatigue was, is a real thing. The reason why it's a real thing is because our occipital lobes, which is processing everything that we look at is like working overtime. You know, it's mm. literally like looking at pixelized versions of everybody on your screen, but then you're, you know, you've got your temporal lobe with your auditory processing. So now I've got to like my occipital, my vision is working really, really hard. And it's not only encoding, you know, it's trying to decode colors, movements, everything on that screen. And then my other lobe is trying to listen to your actual language and decoding your words and, and then producing my own speech. And then my working memory is trying to remember what you're saying before, you know, and holding on to it's way too much. You got to be more conscious. But again, teachers weren't taught like this. I wasn't taught like this. I started my career off as a teacher. I was taught to lesson plan. Right. Lesson planning isn't learning design. Somebody said to me the other day, they're like, would you like to have a phone call instead of a Zoom session? I said, you know what? I actually would. Yeah. And having a phone call seemed amazing because all I was doing was just listening. Yeah. Yeah. It was nice. And that's okay. You can do that. <laughs> <laughs> can we? There's can a face attached more? to the voice. We can okay do that. There's do faces that? attached to the voices. You know, it's okay. Oh, it's it's funny that. actually Same because um, a chunk of the time, actually, the, these podcasts we record are just audio. Yeah. Um, not for that reason, but now that we're saying that, that's that's a great reason to do this, <laughs> to do them as audio. You know, because um, there is there is something that's that's a great point too. It's just like. Um, it's funny too, because on, on the flip side, when, if somebody messages me and says, set up a meeting or something, um, you just default to zoom, but then it's like, I want to be asked for a phone call. That sounds like a great, that's like, <laughs> it sounds nice. You know, it's like, Oh yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about like, Oh, I guess we could use the phone, you know, circle back. Right. Yeah. Like do what, what is more important? Do you want me to focus on me looking at you and looking at everything going on behind you? Or do you want me to listen to you? Where do you want my attention? Right. Right. These colorful right? books. We're here. I, 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 well, see, I acknowledge those and then I'm like, okay, acknowledge, moving on. <laughs> if I don't pay attention, if I don't pay attention to you, you guys are going to ask me a question and I'm going to go, yeah, bananas and dinosaurs. <laughs> like, <laughs> and very confidently. <laughs> right. That's how you divide a negative number, right? Or what is that square root of? Square root of a negative number. They said, <laughs> you, could not do they said you could not do it. That's what I was told. I remember that. I don't remember much. But I remember that. And then the guy came out with imaginary numbers. I was like, son of a bitch. You're like bananas and dinosaurs. That's it. Bananas and dinosaurs. I quit. I'm done. You think I feel like we could dinosaurs? drop the mic on that one. <laughs> I absolutely did. And he said to Banana me, mic. I'm like, well, I said, when am I going to use this? He's like, well, you will use it if you become an engineer. I said, I assure you, that will never happen. He said, he said, it might. I said, it won't. And that, that, was, that was me as a senior in high school, which was a portent of things to come in my relationships right. with people. Uh, well, here I am, got, got kicked out of uh, every, got not only kicked out, I got banned. I got banned from psychology. I won't say what university it was, but I literally got banned. This, this is education for you. I loved it. I loved learning about the mind and I love psychology, but I was failing the tests. Mm, so I huh. got banned. And, you know, I, I, you know, years later, you know, it's kind of look at them apples, <laughs> you know, two yeah, right. certifications so, in neuroscience and, and a business. <laughs> so like the, the, like the psychologists, all, all like the APA or whatever, get together and have a vote on banning you from all of psychology. I mean, how does, how does the banning happen? 
Yeah, I think they they were they went to uh, the the academic advisor and said you need to call her in and tell her she's not allowed to take our classes anymore. And they thought they were doing it in the best interest of my you know my GPA. Um, and I was like, well, but I liked that. <laughs> right. It's not my fault you sat me in a lecture room for three hours and then I didn't really you know you then you wanted me to write a test for two. So. <laughs> right. Where could I, I could have been a neurosurgeon, who knows, uh, you know, my path was, was derailed because I couldn't pass a test. I mean, it's fair to say it's not my fault. You suck. I mean, you know, that the only thing that you're doing is you're attending to three hour lectures, two hour tests that are essay based, that are memorization, yeah. that don't translate it, don't demonstrate connection to experiential elements of that material. Right. And so it is fair to say that, you know, there's a saying that there are no bad students, only bad teachers. And I don't believe that's always true. I've seen many applied bad students, but I've also seen plenty of bad teachers. And the idea of how do we really think about engaging where people are at and not where we wish they were. Right. And I mean, I was one of those bad teachers. And it, I wasn't bad. I didn't know I was bad. I mean, it took me up until the, like this point now, even as a learning and development professional, I was like, woof. I look back, I mean, I taught, I have taught thousands of people globally. And before I knew all of this, I wasn't doing it wrong, but I definitely could have been doing it better. I'm like, that's what this is about. Like, I, I know how to do it better now. And the way that I was doing it before, it was just too old school. It wasn't evolved. So, you know, if we're not as educators, as learners, as people who want to teach other people, if we aren't doing the learning ourselves and learning how to evolve our own practices, then we will go back 120 years. You might as well stay there. Classrooms all look the same. They really, they really do. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does make me think real quick about so much, you know, when people, I've heard people say, well, we've really innovated teaching because we're doing it online now, to which I've said, but it's really not an innovation because we're basically doing the same thing we did in the classroom, but just in a mm. different environment. And so even with people who are, I know I'm, I'm doing a webinar tomorrow on, you know, the, the, the college campus of, of 2030 and, you know, putting more whiteboards up in a, in a classroom doesn't make it more collaborative. <laughs> You know, right. the design of the space, you can even change the design so it doesn't look any different, but it's still really the same place. Like, how do we innovate? How do we really innovate learning and education to make it transformative from what it has been for the last 120 or plus years into something that we need it to be today for all the challenges we're facing? Oh, my answer is always going to go empower people with the knowledge of their own operational systems and watch what they can do. Teach people to join forces with their brains. Mic drop. mic drop. We just mic drop. No one can see that. Right, you can't see that. We mic drop. Yeah. Well, we both mic just drop. mic dropped. <laughs> I think that, that, that that's it. That, that That's it right There's there. no better way to end this. Yeah, I'm done. I'm just going to give a no now. Uh, no. <laughs> and just dab and scene. Yeah, I, I think, you know, this, this empowerment part is, is really, really crucial. But I think one of the crucial, one of the, one of the tricky elements for faculty is I am a professor in that word is to profess, mm. right? I need to give up my own power that to them, to the students. And we can, you know, the whole idea about student led, you know, course design. Empowerment, whether in an organization where managers are giving up control, teachers are giving up control, doctors are giving up control. When you have structures based on control, and then you ask mm. the very people who are supposed to be in control to give it up, but then you hold them accountable to the outcomes, 
Right. That's really scary. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but it does also call for this larger transformation of how we think about it institutionally and our relationships to those we're working with. Wow. Like I said, until we start level setting the expectations on, on the true human brain process of learning, how quickly and how agile the brain can do something versus the expectations of what other people want of it to do, you know, we have to level set that. And, you know, I, one of the, the things I'll always say to people, I don't care if you're a teacher, if you're whatever it is, someone's expecting you to learn something and then perform it like immediately. I said, go hand that person. Like, I've told you this before, hand someone three objects and ask them to juggle. Mm. Now, maybe they can juggle already and that's fantastic. But if you can't juggle, be like, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. I'll come back when you can juggle. Make sense now? Yeah. You just don't learn that fast. Don't. Here, here's a car. Go drive. What? What? Yeah. <laughs> it's cool. I played Mario Kart, you know? Yeah, like, I'm yeah, good. Totally got this. <laughs> a, a is go, right? Yeah. And watch out, and watch out for Where's those bananas. Where's the square and the triangle? Yeah. <laughs> and and with, we have bananas in the dancing. And in Mario Kart, you have bananas that you might slip on. So you have to watch out for Right? Them. If That's... I honk my horn, a turtle shell will pop out from the back. <laughs> you got to be careful. Yeah, right? It's just like real life. It's just like driving in around, like, you know, it's just like driving in Boston, turtle shells and bananas. Exactly. The same. And this place is crazy. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. Cooper Troopers all over here. Oh, can't wait to come back. <laughs> <laughs> I almost believe that. So like, what, like, what's like, what's the next thing for you in your own work? Like, I know you've been really busy creating like a learning system, a learning product. So like, what, yeah. you know, I'd love to have you mentioned a little bit about that. Um, I think I'm getting close enough that I might be able to do a little sort of teaser spoiler at this point. Ah. Um, there is, there is a, uh, this is years in the making um, just because of all the research that I've had to do. And, um, you know, and I think as a translator, the, the amount of translation that has to be done of the research takes like a, an exceptional amount of time. Um, I am working on a series that will be called joining forces with your brain. And it uh, it's, I'm excited for it um, because it's something that I wish that I could have had. Mm. I want, you know, if it, you know, it's, and I'm, I'm excited for it because it's also, it's challenged me to take everything that I know and to excel in it for the betterment of everybody else. It's way too selfish for me to know as much as I know now about my own brain and how to learn and how to design learning and how to be a better human. It's just too selfish for me to know all this stuff. Now it's time for everybody else to know. So um, yeah, I'll be hopefully if, if we get out of the, the land of the COVID and we're allowed to go film and, um, you know, make a great production out of it. That's, that's next. And 2021, look out for joining forces with your brain, the series, <laughs> the journey, the journey, the IMAX journey. experience, the journey. Exactly. You could put VR in that, right? You could put the VR goggles and journey into your, you know, find your brain and go around the air. Yes. Cars. And once, once FOMO becomes a, a billionaire unicorn, I will take that money and create a whole virtual experience of joining forces. Well, it's going to happen. I've already gotten a few offers, a few. Uh, Amazing. <laughs> you heard it. Tool. You all hear it. You heard it here. <laughs> right. We're moving. During this conversation, they're listening and Peter Thiel is like, Hey, right. Yeah. Well, I put something out onto clubhouse. And I've already gotten a few <laughs> capitalists go. who have gotten in touch with me and are interested in providing some of the startup revenue to make that happen. So Amazing. watch this space. I know. Isn't it though? Works fast. Works fast. It really does. Cool. So I think that's great. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. I mean, we, I, I should mention that I found, we, I found about, about you in a student paper of mine 
where a student was doing a project and referenced your work. And I'm like, who is this person? Yes. <laughs> and, then, and then I had to find, I had to find out more and I found out more and now we're now here you are. Oh, so, uh, that's, that's both flattering. And, um, you know, if, if, if there's nothing better than to make you feel your own age when you're being referenced in a school, paper. <laughs> <laughs> I am honored and, um, old. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. Take care. Cool. Many thanks. So we want to thank Lauren Waldman, the learning pirate for coming aboard to talk about how the brain works and how to create better learning experiences. If you want to find out more about Sailing with the Learning Pirate into uncharted waters of learning, man, this is deep. deep. Please see our show notes for more details and as where you can follow Lauren. Deep waters, high seas, learning challenges. And you can also communicate with us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. That's experience with an X, design.com. We would love to hear from you. Always enjoy listening to your feedback, your thoughts for future episodes, things you like and things you would like to see more of. All information is welcome. And if you want to subscribe and join the Experience by Design community, there are so many ways now to do so. You can head over to our website and stay on top of all the EXD news. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can join our EXD community on LinkedIn. And maybe, just maybe, I might make available my Discord channel. For Get excited. Periods. That's very exciting. Where my, my daughter is actually now the moderator of my Discord channel which is a little bit frightening, but she knows more than me. So what are you going to do? Fair. So head over to our website, learn all you can in terms of how you can connect with us. We'd love to hear from you. And with that, we will see you next time on Experience by Design.